Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Thread Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman. Now, the Sands Institute conducts an annual SOC survey, and the latest report, the 2022 SOC survey, attempted to define what a SOC is by identifying the capabilities that respondents said they had within their SOC. Basically, it calls out, if you think you've got a SOC, check this list. These are the things you should be doing. But they weren't doing them all in-house. There was a really cool section of the report where they highlight when they are using outsourced services, when they're using pure in-house re uh, resources, and when they're actually using a blend, particularly for things like red teaming, blue teaming, pen testing, and so forth. Now, this latest report showed a growing dependency on outsourcing, though. More and more organizations are outsourcing a lot of their SOC capabilities. So we've asked back Amit Singh, who's the technical director for Three Columns, an organization that does a lot of these kinds of services in the Australia, New Zealand area. And they do these kinds of things for their clients across a variety of vertical markets. And this makes him an ideal person to discuss this with. So thanks for joining us again, Amit. Hi, Bob. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me again. Oh, it's it's always great. I enjoyed our last session as well, particularly as we just kind of covered the general landscape and you know the pros and cons of different kinds of uh, partners and and uh, particularly a section on how to choose a good one. How I like the certifications and and uh, particularly the government uh, aspect of making sure that the partners you work with are validated and able to support government uh, requirements as well. But today. Um, I shared with you that SANS uh, SOC survey, the 2022 SOC survey. Um, and for anybody who's listening to this, um, the report is available on our website. There's a link in the, um, uh, in, in the uh, abstract that uh, we distributed, and it's on our website, to the report. So you can get the report for free. On page 11, figure 17, it lists all of those different kinds of SOC capabilities that People say, hey, this is the stuff that makes a SOC a SOC. But it also shows how much they do in-house, how much they outsource, and how much they use a mix of, of internal and outsource resources. Now, I've been surprised because I've been watching this for a while, uh, Amit, and I wanted to get your opinion because every year it seems that people are outsourcing more. Um, does this surprise you? I mean, why are people outsourcing things more every year? That's, that's a very interesting topic. Yes, um, there is a trend. Uh, companies are outsourcing more and more. Um, and I can, I, can, I can understand the reason behind it because the, the, the technology landscape has changed quite significantly. There are so many new tools. Uh, COVID hasn't helped companies because now there's a big, um, there's a gap in the, the resource availability. So we are not able to find resources quickly. That's why the companies are looking at outsourcing. But, especially the large enterprise, because they have a big stack of technology. They can't afford to have 20 people running the, the IT. So outsourcing for those companies, you know, definitely makes more sense. And I think similar thing is happening with the small to medium businesses, you know, companies like two, three, four, 500 people. They can't afford to have dedicated staff, um, you know, to manage the IT infrastructure and especially cybersecurity. SOC, uh, traditionally SOC was, was built on a Steam solution. You know, uh, you need to have, you know, eyes on the glass 24 by seven. And, you know, when you have, you know, 24 by seven shift, you're looking at 10, 12 people. 
And Todd, you can't afford to have 10, 12 people keeping an eye on just a dashboard for, for the organization. That's why outsourcing, that brings in a lot of saving and, you know, the 24 by seven, you know, capability for organization. That's why there's a, there's a big trend for outsourcing SOC uh, at the moment. Well, I'm thinking, you know, again, in our previous session, uh, talking about the, the channel partner landscape, we, we talked a lot about how if you want to know if a channel partner can help you, you want to make sure that the individuals are certified as well as the organization has the right certification. So it's both an organization level and an individual level. So if a company is trying to do this in-house, they just don't hire anybody. They need to hire people who've been trained and certified, and that comes at a price. And it's kind of a crazy price to pay for something. I mean, you're talking about day-to-day -day monitoring, but I'm also thinking of there's so many other kinds of things that they do, but they only do that once a quarter, you know, once every six months or maybe even annually. There's certain functions that they don't do those every day, and it doesn't make sense to hire somebody with those skill sets just for that. That's, that's true, Bob. Digital forensic will be the first one that comes to my mind. You probably need that once every year. But if you have a SOC, if you, your SOC partner has that capability in-house, that means as an organization, you can tap into the resources, you know, any time of the day you need it. So that's why, you know, when you're looking at a SOC, they, you know, making sure, like we, the, the, we talked about the channel, what, what capability, what certifications are required. I think same thing needs, the, the, you know, the same methodology applies on uh, SOC as well. You know, they're your SOC analyst. Uh, you know, they need to be certified on whatever theme solution you're looking at. Um, and as a SOC operation, they, they should be comfortable with other tools that are available to, to reduce the risk for the customer or respond to an incident or event for a customer, um, providing incident support. And sometimes it's not about that. Sometimes it's all about providing cybersecurity guidance to the customer, be a bit more proactive. And if your SOC does not have that capability, you know, the, the customers are uh, not getting the right advice at the right time. Well, and you mentioned, um, you know, that also with uh, COVID and that type uh, of those types of scenarios that have impacted a lot of the resources available. But even before COVID, we were, I hate the phrase because uh, everybody was talking about the skill shortage, but it's a fact that, you know, there are so many complicated aspects to, to modern networking because uh, it's not just the network, it's the cloud, it's, you know, uh, uh, public, private, multi-cloud environments that are merging with what you have in your physical network. Um, the nature of, of the environment itself has changed so dramatically, let alone the fact that the number of tools that you need is also growing almost annually. There's new types of tools. It's not just, hey, there's a new vendor. They do this better than the old guy. It's there's a new vendor. They're doing something that nobody else did before. And I need that on top of everything else I did. Um, I'm When I got into cybersecurity back in the late 90s, you had endpoint antivirus and you had firewalls. Those are the only two security tools that existed. Today, the average company has dozens of different cybersecurity tools, and those are just the ones they're using day to day, let alone the kinds of things that you bring. Because, um, again, I want to make sure that the, the audience understands um, Amit is a technical director with a, a channel partner who does these kinds of services, three column out of uh, Australia and New Zealand. And they come in with tools that most of us would never even use. I mean, 
you provide services that you have specialized tools, some of which you've customized or developed yourself, right? That's correct. So especially in our uh, red teaming services, we have developed our tools in-house scripts. You know, mm -hmm. yes, we do have in-house. Yeah, and that and that's the kind of stuff that even if you bring in people with the expertise, can you afford to pay them for the time to develop all that stuff? Um, so it just seems to me it just made a lot of sense that more and more outsourcing is happening, particularly because it was not, I like the chart because it was saying, how many people are doing it all in-house? How many pe people are doing it all outsourcing? But then they had this huge section called both. And I was really surprised how often people are using outsourcing in combination with their inter internal resources. Uh, how often do you find your organization providing those outsourcing services and having to work alongside uh, the in-house team? Um. It's, it's very rare, I have to say. It's, it's not a common scenario. Uh, but then there are very large organizations who can afford to have that skill set in-house. Uh, large universities, you know, government departments, they have that capability in-house. Where they utilize three columns, uh, they utilize us for, to providing them specialized support. Things they can't do it in-house. Now they, they're, they're sick and tired of using their own tools and they want to try something new. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's when we get invited to to those kind of engagement that let's get some fresh, you know, pair of eyes. Let's try something new. Let's see if, if you know, yeah, we can bypass some of the controls that they have built. Yes. So, yeah, it's very rare. Um, but, yes, that, that model does exist as well. And it sounds like a lot of it's size dependent, like you said, when a big organization like government organizations, they hire people to do things that a lot of enterprises would go, why would we ever need that service? But the government has one, anybody, they have somebody who does that thing that no other company would ever even really do. They couldn't justify it. Um, I love, I love uh, working with federal, federal organizations and learning how they're, they're organized, but I want to go into the managed services. You'd mentioned this a little bit um, uh, earlier where, uh, more of the day-to-day -day kind of manage, managed services. Going back into that, you know, not the federal government, but when you get into uh, mid-sized enterprises, um, which can still be very large. Um, I, I don't like to size organizations by their head counts. Um, it's more like by the complexity of their organization. But when they're in that mid-range of complexity, they will sometimes outsource even day-to-day -day services. Um, how often do you see that kind of thing? Uh, like, are, are they using telcos? Because telcos can do some of those services, but it's kind of limited, right? Uh, yes, the, the telcos have become uh, MSP. I, I call them, um, you know, as you said, you know, in the past, it was just the antivirus and the firewall, and that was the, the security. And that's what I found when I when I moved to Australia, you know, and before I found a three column, I found, I call it the identity crisis. You know, that these IT companies who can install an antivirus and install a firewall, they started selling themselves as a cybersecurity company. And telcos are doing the same thing. They're selling themselves as a managed service provider. All they're doing is putting a firewall, some sort of firewall, and putting an internet link to or, or their own traditional old MPLS links to sell it as an SD-WAN service because everyone is looking for SD-WAN at the moment. Um, but if, if you look at telcos bringing a lot of uh, complexity and 
not they don't let the customer have the flexibility that the customers deserve to have. So, for example, you know, if, if a telco is putting their firewall, they would never let have second telco connect their internet line to it. That's not going to happen. You know, that breaches all the SLAs. Yeah. So, so that's why yeah. you know that that model. I I think if the customers there are customers who choose to go down that path because telcos give them enough rebate, enough reasons to go that way, but uh, that model does not bring in the true flexibility the customer should have. Now, telcos have their own limitations. You know, um, you know, I can talk about Australia and New Zealand because I'm very familiar with this market at the moment. Um, they bring in, you know, very less capability, very less flexibility. They're focused on large enterprise than small. Uh, they are not even targeting mid-size. As you said, right, there are, I think the the mid-size and the, the you know, the, the small should be based on the complexity, not on the headcount. I can give you an example. I have a 200-seat customer. They have every government compliance requirement that you can see under the sun because they're based out of U.S. They deal with insurance, so they're dealing with HIPAA, they're dealing with SOC, they're dealing with ISO, they're dealing with PCI compliance. Because they have an office in Europe, they're dealing with GDPR. So telcos, you know, telcos don't have presence everywhere. You know, telcos don't have uh, the capability to provide the right support to these type of customers. They can only provide services around, you know, their telco. And, and even that has its own limitations and boundaries, what customers can or cannot do. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, when it comes to the managed service provider, uh, yeah, telcos are probably, you know, the least flexible when it comes to the outcomes for the business. Well, and I'd like to point out uh, to the audience, make sure that if uh, you're really interested in, uh, you know, finding the right kind of partner, whether it's a telco or a consultant, um, you might want to go back and listen to the first session we had Ahmed on back in uh, March, um, where he kind of breaks down the market. But you also went into the different kinds of requirements and what to look for, not just uh, do they say they are familiar with the tools and capability, but their certifications. You mentioned, you know, government uh, uh, verifications uh, of their their uh, capabilities, um, but also uh you were talking about um, more how they, how a partner, uh, the, the range of, of services, every partner kind of picks what they think they're good at. And, and there's so many, the bottom line is it's so complicated in security. There's, there's no way anybody can know it all. And you're going to have to use a blend of services. And so you need to make sure when you're talking about them, well, okay, this, this partner, he can do this for me, just this one thing, because he specializes. There's another one. They say you can do all of these things for me, but they don't seem to have the certifications. What you might need is someone in between. Um, and it depends on the company. I mean, uh, let's you know also be honest. The reason all of these different kinds of partners exist because there's different kinds of people who need different levels of service. For some of them, a telco is going to be the right thing. It's a turnkey thing. I don't need detail. I just need to get something so I've, I'm safe. Um, there's a lot of people that are just looking for uh, check boxes for their organization. Later on, when they're ready to go a little more advanced, that's when the custom capabilities come in that an organization like Three Column provides, right? Yes, that's correct. So I want to get into um, uh, basically the SANS report was talking about the most popular outsourced services. Um, 
and we don't have enough time to go into a lot of detail here, but the op- most popular ones are pen testing, red teaming, and purple teaming. Um, I thought it was interesting because there's a whole rainbow of colors that they can use to describe <laughs> these kinds of services. Uh, but they picked those three. Um, and I'm, I'm going to, you and I've talked about this. I'm going to have you back to actually drill into red teaming and blue teaming another time. But right now with, you know, five to 10 minutes left here, um, you know, there's a lot of people really confused about, hold on, when do I do pen testing? When do I do red teaming? What are they? And um, why would somebody do it themselves? And why would somebody outsource it? Well, there is a, there's a big difference between pen testing and red teaming. Pen testing is more of an, you know, uh, scoped, very confined uh, exercise. Uh, it, you know, it's all about finding vulnerabilities and explaining it to the customer that what vulnerabilities need to be uh, fixed in the environment, what needs to be prioritized. Whereas red teaming is, is there, are, there are multiple uh, reasons why customers do red teaming and, and the outcomes that you can look at. One, uh, gaps in the, the processes that does your SOC team, first of all, you know, do you have the tools to be able to identify a malicious activity? You know, uh, does the SOC or your Steam system or whatever system you have, uh, do you get the alert for malicious activity? And once you do get alerts, who respond to them? You know, and what happened if this incident happened at 12 o'clock in the afternoon or at 2, 2 a.m.? Who responds? Who's available? Who's in charge of taking care of making sure that this infection, if it is, it doesn't spread. So red teaming is to identify the gaps in your process or technology stack, um, whereas pen testing is misconfiguration, open ports, uh, things like that. You know, or, or vulnerabilities, or missing patches in the operating system. So there's a there's a big difference between red teaming and pen testing. Now, why would I want to do pen testing in house? I mean, there's tools, freeware tools that I can download. Um, uh, versus outsourcing. Again, keeping in mind that there's some companies they just need to do it, you know, the basics. And then there's others who really want to know if they've got a problem. At what level do I do it myself? And at what level do I bring in outside people? So, you know, that's that's uh, where my consulting, if I put the consulting hat on for a few seconds, my recommendation to all my customers is deploy an in-house vulnerability scanner and make sure you stay on top of everything. Because the, the way I describe pen testing is very similar to a blood test. You know, the minute you take the blood out of the body, and if anything changes in the blood, you know, or inside your body, you will only find out in the next round of, you know, the, the blood test, which, which will most likely be 12 months, you know, away. So if you have a vulnerability, because what happened in a pen testing, the pen testers will come in, bring in their devices Monday to Friday, you know, nine to five, they will do the testing and on Friday they will finish the job. What if, and it happened, log4j vulnerability. There were many organizations that had completed pen testing two or three days before the vulnerability was advertised. And now how do you know that are you, you know, impacted by those kind of vulnerabilities or not? So that's where, you know, if you have a vulnerability scanning tool in-house, you make sure you set up your infrastructure correctly so that you can pick up those vulnerabilities a, a lot faster. Where pen testing comes in, where we do pen testing, we use uh, 
20% of our effort is using the tools, automated scanner, likes of Nessus, likes of Qualys. There are so many other brands, likes of Rapid7. We pick up the, the vulnerabilities, but then 80% of the time is actually we do manual testing. We have our own script. And why customers should be looking at at least one pen testing a year and an ongoing vulnerability scanning in-house because that that 80% of the effort that we put in uh, is basically more focused on what vulnerability scanners don't identify. Um, you know, there, there are many, many things that many tests we perform, the vulnerabilities that goes beyond what vulnerability scanners would do. And we also help uh, customers identify that what vulnerabilities or gaps they need to fix on a priority basis versus, you know, it could be a vulnerability, but if there's no exploit exist, you don't need to worry about that vulnerability. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about prioritizing it because if you scan anybody's network for vulnerabilities, you're going to find them. You know, they're going to be there. Um, I was surprised. Um, of course, Infoblox has a, a networking side and a security side. And I work on the security side. But some of the networking tools, the security people love. Um, they've got this uh, uh, utility called NetMRI. Basically, it does like an MRI scan of your network. But, you know, people thinking, oh, yeah, that's just something that's going to pour it all into IPAM and give me some device information. But it goes deep enough to the point where it'll actually say, oh, by the way, and this particular router has this firmware that actually, and, and it can then tie that to certs and say, oh, but that firmware, there are known exploits. And they weren't even aware of it because when people start thinking of vulnerability scanning, they're checking for applications and, you know, uh, web app uh, vulnerabilities or uh, something that might take a SQL in section. They don't think of outdated firmware. Uh, there's a lot of gaps that they can miss, even with vulnerability scan. And that's where that annual thing you're talking about, that starts getting into more of those areas that might get missed otherwise, right? That's correct. That's exactly what we identified. That's, that's where you, you talked about, you know. Uh, Infoblox as well. It does, you know, the, we perform, you know, as part of our red teaming engagement, we perform some DNS checks uh, that your traditional or any vulnerability scanner in the market will just, it just cannot perform. And the reason why we, we perform these checks, because we know hackers or the ransomware gangs have used DNS to uh, abuse the, or, or for data exfiltration. And that's where uh, Infoblock, likes of Infoblock, they they detect that sort of threat, you know, pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, so traditional, there are gaps in the traditional, you know, vulnerability scanning, and that's why companies should be looking at engaging a pen tester, you know, a qualified pen tester on a regular basis. Right, and again, uh, any listener wants to know uh, how to know if you've got a qualified pen tester, go back and listen to the uh, March episode where Amit first came in and helped us uh, talk about how to find a partner that's going to be worth the effort. But unfortunately, we are running out of time. So um, I really want to thank uh, Amit and Three Columns for letting you come. Uh, thanks for being here again. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. And I want to thank all of our viewers and listeners for your time as well. Join us next time as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity and ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk. <laughs>